This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers, show number 49. We are so close to 50. Recorded on September 24th, 2018. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future. If you have questions, comments, or contributions during this webcast, we do have an email. You can send us send it to Christian because I I don't I won't know what you're talking about. Christian at theaverageguy.tv, or you can send it to me, Jim at theaverageguy.tv. Find me on Twitter at Jake Allison, Christian at Borg Whisper. Of course, theaverageguy.tv platform uh, powered by Maple Grove Partners, secure, reliable, high speed hosting from people that you know and you trust. You're staring at one. Plans start as little as 10 bucks, both podcast and media hosting provided. If that's if you can do podcasts, but if you want to do a website, just talk to Christian. He'll he'll get it set up for you. MapleGrovePartners.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, why not? If you're on Apple or Google, get to hit that subscribe. If you're on YouTube, it's even better now. Their subscribe engine is pretty good. Hit subscribe and hit the bell. That way you're notified every time we go live. I'm hanging out with Christian again tonight. Christian, wow, we got to two in a row, two weeks apart. Yeah. It's a miracle. Yeah. You know, and the the trend has been two or three in a row, and then this large cliff hang. But even between the last cliff hang, the cliff was more like a small molehill instead of a cliff. So, yeah, it's getting better. It's getting uh, better. I think yeah. our lives are settling down. Maybe yours settling down a little bit. I was, I was super glad. No India podcast for me tonight. Typically, I would be doing this and then going into work and doing our call to coach in India. It's kind of nice to get to hang out tonight. Maybe even get it yeah. published and out before. Well, no, you've got some work to do. You, you're, you're, yeah. you got oh, some oh, yeah. notes work to do. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, well, let's let's dig in a little bit. Hey, do you ever get uh, you ever get any feedback from listeners on we we always talk about your email address. Do you ever get emails from folks? Yeah, we've had some um, some sparse feedback um, a couple shows ago. Uh, I'm trying to remember what the the last last major topic was. Um, I know there's some folks who have reached out to me regarding like, hey, I want to get involved in. Um, kind of cybersecurity from an education perspective. Like I want to go back and figure this out um, as a degree. What do you recommend? Um, so that that is actually one of the more interesting emails um, I've gotten uh, as of recent uh, as a result of the show. Um, but, you know, nothing, no, no major earth shattering, like, oh, I thought you were really right or really wrong about this. So yeah. um, well, we'd, this. we'd appreciate your feedback if you got things you want to, dialogue about we'll read your feedback on the show if that if you send it in if that's one of those kinds of things that trips your trigger yeah see see, jim is really good at sending out the newsletter so um you guys are probably engaging based off the newsletter more than uh the silent void called christian's mailbox um but uh, it's all right it's all right i i get lots of great emails on um (laughs) i get lots of great emails on um people who want to inject their links into average guy.tv articles. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, know, yeah. Those are yeah. truly get, inspirational and uh, famous. I get three uh, or four a day. I even had somebody willing to pay me 60 bucks to post it. And then they're like, but you can't say it's a paid advertisement. And I'm like, well, isn't it? And they're like, I know, but you can't, you can't put that on there. And I'm like, well, I'm not gonna, if you're paying me for this, I kind of need to say it's a paid advertisement, right? This mm-hmm. post is paid and it kind of ended right there. So it's always fun to be on the other end of those kinds of emails of folks. We get, you know, our email addresses on the site. They scrape it right off. I get two or three. Uh, sometimes I get two or three a day 
for those, and I, I ignore most of them. It's not really where we want to go with the average guy.tv. Gets us back to this whole conversation, too, uh, when we talk about frontier technologies, whether or not email is a dead technology. Is it always going to be here as the formal audit trail of communication and sequential processing of messages, or are we going to get away from it? Um, yeah, I don't, I, so I would, it, inter, for enterprise, it's really hard to leave. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've seen people try to move to things like Slack or whatever, and it has largely been a failure. I mean, well, it's know. interesting because those platforms always have a purpose, right? For example, there's a lot of times as an engineer where I'm more inclined to use an, an instant message for some forms of communication as opposed to an email. Um, on the flip side of that, though, these monolithic uh, platforms and technologies such as, you know, email I mean, the protocols that define like how inboxes work, how messages get sent, they've been around since pretty much like beginning eras of Linux, pre-Linux even. Um, So really bizarre um, that our communication, our efforts to evolve communication certainly have happened, but have never, quote, succeeded or transformed to the point where that monolithic beast has really moved off of the importance scale. Um, If anything, I think what we've proven is that um, emails, for whatever reason, are embedded in our psychosis as a more formal means of documentation and authoritative communication than a a chat room or a instant message or a group message ever will be. so it's, it's interesting from that perspective, especially because we maintain essentially what I call dead protocols, which is like even on a personal level with email, we maintain usage of things like IMAP and POP, which um, as protocols haven't been touched for decades. Um, the, the only real modification to IMAP or POP in, in, in all that time has been adding the word S at the end, which means it goes over an SSL certificate. Big deal. Um, but the protocol itself has had zero evolutionary tales to be told. Um, and, and so, you know, we talked on the last show about how protocols like these have been kind of fallen by the wayside because they're not able to support modern day authenticators. So two factor over IMAP get lost, right? I'm still sitting here trying to decide what my strategy is for, dealing with a Gmail account that I've enabled my Google Authenticator for and now have no way to push it to my Outlook of preference, right? Um, Blows my mind, really, that they added support for Apple Mail given like kind of like proprietary company A called Apple, talks to proprietary company B, Google. Company B, Google, really wants their Gmail app on everything and their mother, but still somehow decides to invest the time to invest back into... Uh, company proprietary A's mail platform closed source so that it works. It's like, really? Um, and even more interesting that they did it for iPhone than they they didn't go anywhere near the whole Microsoft or Thunderbird disaster. Um, but kind of a relevant topic, actually, because one of the big um, tech announcements for people who care about nerdy security things today is that Yubico announced the launch of the YubiKey 5 um, series hardware key. So this is most of what people are using from YubiKey today uh, that people are familiar with are their their YubiKey 4, um, you know, U2F FIDO um, solution, which is basically 
what provides a two-factor one-time um, password for common applications and acts as that second form of hardware-based authenticator. Um, what's really uh, exciting about this new launch um, with, with the YubiKey 5 is that they are announcing this is the beginning of passwordless logins using hardware. Um, so if we kind of break down what that means, um, going back to almost a year ago, um, a bunch of people who care about standards published an RFC on um, this new technology platform called WebAuthN. And the concept behind WebAuthN was that for modern day web and, you know, kind of your traditional, like, I want to log into my bank, I want to do my Gmail, my Facebook, whatever, web, behind HTTPS, etc. Um, I want a standard that every main browser platform will support that app developers can easily integrate with that will allow for passwords to die and die hard. And we've been talking since the start of the show and even since on podcasts prior to the show about the need for the death of the password. Um, the exciting thing today is that this is the first time I think it's actually feasible for the average guy to start moving into that direction. Um, the Firefox, Chrome, and Edge will all uh, be supporting the WebAuthN standard in the latest uh, release, which is out now. Um, and this all rolls up under version two of the protocol of you know FIDO U2F. So um, the, the key takeaway here is that whereas with previous versions of YubiKey, it was really acting as a second form of factor, this new... Um, WebAuthN standard is, in essence, a way to replace the use of passwords altogether. So it's no longer an augmentation as a second factor. It is the main factor of authentication. Um, what's interesting to note about that is this concept of stealing or phishing a password completely goes away with something like the YubiKey 5, because what the hardware token is doing is generating a unique public-private key pair for every application that it interacts with and generating a, think of it as like a password staple for every session that it creates. So as soon as that session is terminated, that password no longer works for that. So the concept of stealing a password goes away entirely. Um, and if you're in control of your private key on the hardware device, and the vendors control the public key and the bus or mechanism by which those two things are exchanged is a uniform protocol called WebAuthN. The only real attack vector as of now is this concept of, I'm going to find a way to steal your hardware token and use it, right? We've always said that uh, physical access is the bane of all existence. It is the worst. Um, short of, you know, st solutions and strategies like encryption at rest and otherwise, like if you have physical access to hardware, it's always going to be an easier time um, than if you don't. Um, I think where the potential for us to find the next vulnerability in this set of technology is not even necessarily the hardware token so much, uh, more so than finding either a flaw in the protocol implementation or a flaw, flaw, a flaw in the definition of the protocol itself in WebAuthN. And so 
this has been out in kind of release candidate status for quite some time. Uh, it seems to be pretty well vetted. Uh, clearly, if you can now go and buy these hardware tokens for $45, um, people are buying into it. Um, before today with YubiKey, um, the, with the advent of this fifth release, you really could not find many uh, version two FIDO devices out there all to purchase. And the ones that you could find really didn't support any other standards on top. Whereas um, with the version five, you're not only getting the version two FIDO, but you're getting the same stuff that you have in your existing YubiKey. You're getting integration with smart cards, um, PGP, you know, uh, your traditional challenge response. So it's not like they're abandoning any of the other successful advents in stronger authenticators. Um, it is really just raising the bar for, hey, let's get rid of the ultimate authenticator. That's the bane of our existence, which is the password. Um, and, you know, the quote is basically passwordless logins bring a monumental change to how business users and consumers will securely log into applications and services. And that's from the corporate VP of Microsoft, who is an interesting player in this whole um, release of technology, because with version one of kind of the Yubico 4 and the FIDO standard, Google and Yubico were the two big players in getting that first standard out the door. In this uh, FIDO 2 release, Microsoft is stepping up to the table as a major player in both pushing for the adoption of the WebAuth N standard as well as bolstering the protocol of FIDO 2 um, such that, uh, very interestingly, Google contributed, Microsoft contributed, and it seems like everyone is buying into this very quickly. So... Um, what's, and, and, and furthermore, it will definitely pump up sales of hardware based tokens, but the FIDO2 protocol is very flexible. So they, um, propose multiple, uh, kind of user stories or use cases within the protocol that say, it's not only the hardware tokens. We envision FIDO2 where you authenticate over WebAuth and to your web application with a tap on your cell phone and you're done. Meaning um, the way they're going to get economy of scale on this very quickly as the protocol gets popular is, hey, if you have your phone, tap and go. We're familiar with that concept when it comes to two-factor authentication. We are not currently familiar with that concept as the end-all be-all of a primary passwordless authenticator, which is really what's being advocated for in this new model. Um, I think one of the interesting things that's going to have to be uh, kind of disseminated and figured out as we move to this strategy is, is this um, passwordless authenticator going to be strong enough to stand on its own for the majority of use cases as a single authenticator? Or what are the other combinations of things that allow us to have multi-factor authentication within this new protocol. It's not immediately clear to me based on how they are selling and promoting the protocol right now that that is given a lot of thought. It certainly looks like you can combine something like I have a pin that I know in addition to the hardware authenticator and the combination of those two things will then generate the unique public-private key um, relationship that essentially allows for that one-time session password. And that's certainly very uh, plausible way to proceed, but um, the technology also certainly lends itself to moving to back to a single authenticator standard um, that doesn't re rely on 
memorizing or having a mnemonic. So um, along with the advent of these technologies, I think the big death in companies will be the death of the password manager. And it's not going away anytime soon, but I think password manager companies like LastPass, RoboForm, and so forth might be on a 10 to 15 year decline path to being out of business unless they find a way to evolve their business within hardware-based authenticators. And I'm not really sure what that looks like because if the whole concept of the hardware-based authenticator is to not store or persist any um, credential, then you really kind of are defeating the whole purpose of having a company around securely storing your authenticators. So um, very interesting times. I think the market is starting to shift. We're seeing traditional companies like password managers being kind of like the the they're the true workhorse of this part of security for the last 10 years. Um, I think they're now in this second 10 years, they've hit their peak of like, this is the, this is the best it's going to get for companies like LastPass, my prediction. Um, after that, um, the era of the hardware authenticator is going to take over. And as passwordless stuff goes away, I'm sure these companies, LastPass, et cetera, are, are seeing the writing on the wall. So how they choose to adopt their company is for them to tell us, right? I'm not going to predict, but I think the core traditional business of we're in the business of helping you remember and create passwords is going to go away. Um, and then it's just really a question of um, how comfortable do people feel about the odds of placing a lot of their information security on the ability to hold on to a physical hardware token? Like what happens if it gets lost in the street? Is it like a credit card? How quickly is it for me to deactivate that hardware token? If I deactivate that hardware token, does everything that participates in the platform automatically um, disable or do I have to go to each website to deal with it, right? So a lot of lingering questions for me, I think as the use cases start to increase, right? Um, you know, certainly today, um, if someone had access to my physical Google hardware token, um, they would have no problem logging into my account. The only other thing they would need is a password at this point. Um, that's what's kind of holding back the, I steal your hardware token. If we do get to a place where we're not using this combination of pin hardware, um, and it's just hardware, um, that would be a driving question for me. So, um, maybe the case that we don't get away to me, to me, passwordless means exactly that passwordless to me, a pin is just a sub implementation of a password. Right. Um, and so true passwordless technology is no human memorable element other than jam this token in. Um, if that is where we're heading, then it definitely raises interesting questions for what are the hardware tech vectors? And certainly um, what is the permutation of possibilities of someone essentially kind of fabricating or trying to clone what my hardware uh, authenticator looks like? So lots of interesting topics there. I think we're way far out from that, but definitely... I'm, I'm noting today, September 24th is a pivot point between like the old guard of, of password management is on its way out um, and hardware authenticators are in their way in. And this is really interesting because when you think about, um, I remember last year, it's clear as day, I'm trying to remember the name of the company. I hated them with a passion because they mailed me once a week uh, despite attempts to you know 
do all the all the needful to make it stop. Um, what they emailed was basically this, you know, very old and tiresome solution that you hear from vendors all the time of we're going to rotate these passwords and we have these complex ways of managing your passwords and doing all this good credential and authentication and identity management. Well, it's all a bunch of BS basically because they're also another also ran a company behind the times of the fact that um, we might actually get successful at vending hardware and software platforms in the next 10 years that you no longer open up your laptop to a password screen. You open it up to please insert your authenticator. And that's something you carry on your body. Um, in 30 years, that authenticator might be in your brain or in your skin or in a molar or wherever. Um, and so we're getting much more to the point where especially as biometrics catches up as a field, I think biometrics is, is there, but lagging. Um, we're at a point where there are now capabilities that can be merged together in order to get something like, okay, if hardware authenticators are going to be the future over the next 10 years and phase out the classic notion of how we've done authentication for the last 50 years, then we also want to pay close attention to what are kind of the biotechnology that is going to come out in the next 20 years that can influence the development of hardware-based authenticators to be um, human hardware interfaces. Um, and I don't think anyone's, you know, maybe science fiction or otherwise people think about this, but I don't think anyone realistically thinks that, oh, by 2020, this is the thing we're going to be doing. No, but the technology platforms are there. Certainly the Ubico 5 offering, um, very consumer ready. I think a lot of the biometric solutions today still not all that practical. Um, I still don't find it intuitive to log on to someone's laptop where they have facial recognition set up and I have to sit down and figure out like, how do I override their facial recognition to log in as me? How does, how does someone walk over to their laptop naturally and say, hi, it's me delegate access to this other face you see over here, right? Like there's some natural ways when we think about the human computer interaction that we're dealing with right now, that doesn't make it intuitive yet for true hardware-based biometric authenticators. But I think we're moving in that direction. Like that's my prediction of where the, the true frontier is. Um, where the present day frontier is, is certainly... Um, We've seen the enterprise adopting these tokens a lot over the last couple of years. We even talked about on this show some of the pitfalls of using two-factor that doesn't involve a hardware authenticator, right? So um, big industry move and trend in the enterprise. I think these types of technology platforms, especially at the price points, is really starting to become an enabler for the average consumer to step this game up. So, you know, I think the next big step up that I'm looking and hoping to see is when you buy a laptop or whatever, like they, they should be working on bundling agreements, right? Like for your average consumer, when you buy a new laptop or whatever, Ubico should be calling up HP and Microsoft and Google and saying, hey, put this device, you know, just, just put this as part of the deal, right? Like make it, make it super simple for the average guy to not think about, oh, how do I acquire one of these things? How do I set it up? You know, like out of the box, my hardware authenticator is, is, you know, one click to activate to be ready to go with my laptop. Then it's uh, another series of clicks to be ready to go with my common apps and services, right? Like when you think about the Windows 10 
like setup experience, for example, right? Where it's like, even today with our super modern OS, we still have the user sit down, put in a username, set up their colors, choose their privacy settings. Like that is the golden goose time to get your user on the right security settings at the start, because chances are the average person isn't going to give a rat's ass once they can get to Google Chrome and they're on their browser and email. Like it's, it's an afterthought, right? But, um, Certainly for that audience, I think it's really important for them to move in that space in the market. Um, I think for people who recognize the value of the technology, that's not going to be necessary. I think the adoption is going to be pretty huge. Um, and, and, you know, there are going to be battles even in like Ubico is definitely a dominating force, but they're not the end all be all. For example, the Google hardware token that I have is a token that Google makes, right? So I can't use my YubiKey token right now to enroll it in the Google authentication service as they currently have it configured. How uh, much is it going to be the case that platforms open themselves up to the the common standard of like a web authn or, or a universal two-factor where they'll accept anyone else's hardware token versus, oh, you got to use my own hardware token. Um, I'm hoping that's a battle that doesn't take long because we've seen it time and time again in other sectors of technology. And it just, it's boring, quite frankly. Um, and I don't think the companies really ever prove much value add and whether or not they preserved profits by doing that. Um, so it's a huge opportunity for enablement. I'm super passionate about it predominantly because, you know, it is finally the real death of dictionary attacks and you know weak cryptography and so forth. I mean, the onboard cryptography of a YubiKey device is RSA forty ninety six, right? Like, if you think about, if you just take a second to step back for a sec, most of the SSL on the internet right now is twenty forty eight. So that hardware token is double the cryptographic strength of any website you're hitting on the internet right now. So. That right there should tell you, like, we are definitely baking in a level of over-security in the protocols being cho chosen. And the interfaces are really getting very intuitive, right? It supports USB-A, it supports USB-C, it supports near-field communication. Um, our phone is now acting as an interface. They, The Google makes a token that goes over Bluetooth, right? So right off the bat, I have five different um, mediums and interfaces that will work with these types of devices and the device all speaks the same language and interfaces with these platforms the same way. So um, I'm super excited about it. I think we're definitely heading in this space. Um, it'll be interesting to see um, what the adoption rate is for new users as well as for people who use things like the YubiKey 4 and are very happy with it today. Christian, I think you're right on in the context of getting the usage because we, we, you have to ask the question like today, the average guy, not a clue. Like they don't know how to use these. They don't know they're coming. They don't, you know, they're, they're, they're just struggling with passwords. And you said, you know, I think about two big movements that, that got people going with technology. One was the advent of the free computer in 1997 when, AOL did everything it could to get people to get you know the a computer in the hands of people, right or wrong, good computers or not. Like I mean, there was some shady stuff going on back then, but um, it it jump started the internet. Right. The second was the advent of the subsidized phone, and without some of those subsidies, 
the phone, it takes longer for the phone. It's, I'm not saying it wouldn't have happened, but it takes longer for that growth to happen and for mm-hmm. becoming a universal device. You said, yeah. and I think the key to this is we got to get our hardware partners to figure out how to give this thing away. Nobody's going to buy this thing. Like nobody. It's companies need to buy them or they need to be, they need to be bundled with whatever kind of hardware. Like you're saying, you get a phone, here's your security token, right? And because you're going to lose it, you have to be easy ways to replace, to get a second one, to get right, to get some of these things kind of worked out. It has to be drop dead simple. And I think today, the, the good news is I think we have great tools. Like this is some of the best stuff we've seen yet come out, come out of this sector. So the tools are ready. Will they, will they be adopted? That's a completely different, that's a human problem. Right. That's not a technology problem. It's human. How are we going to cut people over to see the right that either has to be mandated by somebody, whether mm-hmm. it's their employer or whatever, or it has to get so ridiculously bad with security that that people are going to be like, OK, I will use this thing because I have to. Right. And um, you'd also said something like a credit card. And you think today, if I lose my card, I really don't worry about it. Like I call the company. I have them cancel. I know I'm not liable for those charges that hit anyways. It's like, uh, you know, hey, I lost my card. They cancel everything. It's gotten so good. They can have that new card reissued and to you. And in some credit card companies, they take care of all the cutover of all your, you know, if you have a bunch of, um, you know, reoccurring payments, they take care of those for you. They get them switched. They It passes through. I mean, they do some amazing things to make that very convenient. It hasn't always been that way with credit cards, right? I remember the early, well, seven, eight years ago was awful today. I mean, it's still awful when your, your identity gets stolen, but man, these guys have a, I mean, it's a checklist and they're like, ka-chunk, 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 ka-chunk. And it sucks. Don't get me wrong. It's awful, right? People are like, you're making, it's not great. No, it's not. But the way they've handled it, I think with this, we're going to have to find better ways to handle it. Like customer service has to get better with it. People have to know what to do once they have it. And if, if they won't buy them, so we're going to find ways to give them away. Like, I think your idea is brilliant. You get a phone, it comes with a device, whatever mm-hmm. that is, whether it's YubiKey or Google Authenticator or whatever, it comes with a device or it's built into the device or it's something along those lines that helps people. Otherwise, I just don't think we'll get adoption. Well, and so, you know, and that's kind of what's really interesting, too, is that um, one of the things that is not really clear to me right now is which platform wins, the hardware-based token or the phone? Because I think no one has made a really strong case for for the average guy, why is the hardware token better than the app tap, right? Um, and I think that is going to be... Uh, you know, I, I can tell you what the answer is, right? It's just the factor that you're not running an operating system in order to do authentication. So inherently, your attack surface is a like a needle in a haystack as, a compo- as opposed to a whole phone. But that is also within the lens of the fact that you're starting from a very secure place when dealing with the app on the phone. So you know, definitely some trade-offs for uh, ease of use against like the gold standard of security. Um, that being said, not clear to me at this time which value proposition ultimately wins out. 
Um, I could easily see phones winning out for the average guy and hardware tokens winning out for the enterprise. Um, a very kind of common dividing line that I see already emerging. Um, but, you know, I think there is a place for educating average folks on hardware tokens. And I, I, my hope is that if we really get people started from the start with their technology experience, with the concept of like using the word authenticator instead of password and talking about, you know, what is an authenticator and not like getting like not diving into the weeds, but at least giving like a super high level of like, here's what this device is. Here's why you want this device. It's much the same as, why we don't want credit cards anymore. Like why we want to have a phone tap a, a little square on a pay uh, point of sale system and, and, you know, grab and go. Um, uh, much the same as how credit card companies even will gener allow you to generate virtual credit card numbers to store in certain websites, right? Like allowing people to see the preventative measures and kind of see the, attack defense strategy, I think is a really important way. And if we could do that as like a crisp two minute elevator pitch as a part of rolling out some of these devices and platforms, I think we would have a very convincing case that the average guy would be at least willing to listen to and then make an informed decision about. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. It, I think we're getting closer to it. D does it, let's, let's go full circle though. When we think about email, what, what is the nail in the coffin? Because all mm -hmm. these technology solutions have to always come back to the least common denominator. Like email worked in, you know, it was introduced first. It got high adoption because it was easy to use. We weren't worried about nobody. It's funny. In the early days, nobody was worried about the security of it as much. We weren't sending, you know, we're sending notes to each other. And it became more and more important and security became important. And like, like you mentioned, you know, we have some protocols that are ancient, and the system as a whole is broken, but to replace it, it would have to be replaced. Whatever replaces it would have to be universally adopted. I mean, when I start the podcast, right, we, we say, if you want send us an email, Jim at the average guy TV, like that is so ingrained. Sure. Mm -hmm. I could say, okay, track us, you know, do it on Twitter. Well, no, not everybody's going to go there. Or I could say, send us a note on Facebook, or I could say like, there isn't that universally accepted communications yeah. method. How do we get to that point? Well, so here's where the logical divide is. And actually, quite interestingly, um, it is a problem that I've tried to solve previously. And I think the thing that's missing is the platform that we're starting to build now. So let's make the base assumption that adoption of hardware-based tokens goes up. Well, what's one of the main benefits that that buys me is... I, I am firm in my position that the protocols that operate email are fundamentally old, but um, old can sometimes be good if you can do the things over the old. So let me put that into English. Basically, um, one of the things that most people ignore about that's a great feature of a YubiKey is you can install an open PGP key right on the hardware token. So if my hardware authenticator is natively carrying around my email cryptography, then it doesn't matter if my protocol sucks and people get into my protocol and start seeing my data because all they see is encrypted bits. And so 
That to me is really important because what that says is even if the protocol transport layer is weak or not ideal or doesn't support the best authentication mechanism, I'm already bolstering the confidentiality and integrity of my data with a platform I already have, right? Like what's the biggest um, limitation to adoption of secure email? I'm not talking about in transit, right? Like most mail providers, you can do encryption in transit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but like, if I want to go and email you, Jim, uh, an encrypted email, you you don't have my PGP key. You don't have those tools set up on your desktop. Like for you, it's it's more of a pain than it is a convenience, right? Well, now if I'm already getting this hardware token issued to me, it's not inconvenient because in theory, you know, vendors would be smart to make it dead simple to pretty much auto enroll you in PGP. Hey, here's the hardware token for it. And then the mail providers just need to pick up just like they're using with WebAuthN for web application security with these platforms. They just have to come up with the equivalent thing to make it super easy for all those platforms so that when my YubiKey plugs in, my Outlook automatically sees, hey, here's your PGP key. Hey, um, you know, send who in your contacts would you like to send this to so that you can start talking this way and just make the technology self-enabling. One of the biggest failures of technology is human administration interfaces, meaning if I give my user the choice on something that, you know, and, and it's interesting because you can twist what I'm about to say in terms of like, oh, well, if you're not giving me the choice about things or privacy or whatever, like you're taking away my customization rights. And you're absolutely right. But a human and interfacing uh, where it's, it is like swimming upstream to make their user do it, like make it so easy and self-enabling that the technology isn't making the choice for you, but is more or less begging you to, because it's like click of a button, don't have to think about it. It's holding my hand like a child through the process and making it super simple for me to start out of the box in a default secure state. Like I advocate for these technologies so much because I believe that we should be democratizing the concept of, you know, basic authenticators, high level security to start with. Like it shouldn't take being an elite hacker or a technologist to be enrolled on these platforms. And when, um, when it's the case that only 5% of people use this kind of stuff, you have to ask yourself like, what is the limitation? And the limitation is really simple. We haven't made it dirt simple and cheap for them to do it at a value add that they feel comfortable with. So um, all of the tools platform-wise are there to evolve things like email protocols to their next state. Like if you think about with the whole Gmail, Apple Mail thing, it is very much that, right? Like one of the most exciting and disappointing things about the Google authentication program is that they hand me a hardware token so that the only way I can get to my Google services is through this token. I can't even use my Outlook anymore. But then they don't just take the like super simple step of like, hey, enroll Gmail today with OpenPGP and we'll store your key on our Google authenticator. Like, like Google, they could totally dominate that. Total domination. It would be like, they have the developers for it. They have the enterprise scale to do it. Like that is such a no brainer feature to me. And it's just like time and time again, that stuff just like gets dropped. It's like, why, it's like a, why do you think what's, what's, I, what's the disconnect? I, I have to feel the disconnect is 
a couple things actually like for Google um, they're they're in the business to make money so if all of the emails that they're storing are basically encrypted at rest then they're never going to be able to create personalized ads for you in the Gmail interface without uh, basically um, being a man in the middle to the secure approach and making it useless right so like the the financial implication i think is what drives a lot of the like ease of use right it's ultimately at the end of the day coming down to we want you to be secure in owning your account but we want to be secure in owning you so as soon as you take away the ability for the provider to regulate you game over they're not going to do it but They'll go. They'll bend over backwards to make sure that no one else can regulate you in using their service, and so that's kind of the big tragedy of it. Is that we do have incredible opportunities to do some of this stuff and super cheap. Like I said, it's there to do it today. If people wanted to do it, it would take you know six months to a year for a talented team at Google to roll something like this out. Limitation is finances, so it's like. What really has to happen in addition to the technology continuing to become more popular is you got to find a better revenue model, right? A revenue model that doesn't require um, these types of hooks into people in order to, you know, make the business work. And so um, it's both the great blessing and tragedy of what we're dealing with right now is that we have these great technical capabilities that we can't quite orchestrate to what is the most intuitive thing because there is an audience there that is kind of behind the curtain that we don't really think about until we do. And then it's super obvious and it's like going back to square one. So um, my hope is we find ways to move where the revenue opportunities are so that we can move in the enabling technology to backfill it. Um, you know, and, and great example of why to do something like that is customer trust, right? Like the customer trust piece of this is super clear to me. Um, Google got hit today because, you know, in their latest release of Chrome 69, there's this kind of concept of what they're coining forced login feature. And it's, you know, you used to always have control over signing into the browser, like with your Gmail, and then they would like sync your bookmarks and all these things. They claim that's not happening out of the default. But like I said, when I updated to this latest Chrome release, which was a little disappointing because honestly, the UI looks more like Firefox now than the Chrome. It was like, yeah, it was like, what was up with that? Yeah. Um, and, and so UI was like, okay, whatever. Uh, but then it's like, oh, my little face is like already there. And I click my little face and it's, there's this giant ass menu that says sync as Christian. And I'm like, I never turned on sync. So when I click sign out, what am I doing? Am I signing out of the browser? Will Google Hangouts stop airing our podcast? Like, I have no idea. I haven't tried it yet. I think the answer is yes. Cause I think it is like persisting your login throughout all the Google services. So when you log in a Gmail in a tab, like a website, it is now physically logging into applications on your box. Like mm, super annoying for, for security people, because we always have this, this, this layer in our heads of web applications should never be able to touch physical application without permeating some type of trust model with the user. Right. So like a lot of people were like, I'm done with Chrome today, going to Firefox, which 
Chrome had been avoiding for quite a while. Like they'd been doing pretty well. Um, but so this is a great example of a trust busting move that like, what did Google gain by doing this? And at what cost did it have to customer trust? And I'm making the same argument that in a longer time frame, the same customer trust issue and case can be made for why you want to do the right thing and enroll people in things like, you know, the, the YubiKey and the open PGP and just make it common platform, make it accessible. Um, particularly with WebAuthn, I mean, let's note that all three browser platforms like got on board, no problem. There wasn't any like squabble there, right? Like, oh, we're going to do it our way or, oh, you're going to do it this way. Um, in fact, I think browsers have been one of, by and large, have standardized way more like than they than ever before in the history of browsers. You get a more continuity and continuous experience across platforms than at any time in our history, right? Like Internet Explorer is dead. You're dealing with three modern browsers of Edge, Firefox, and Chrome. And by and large, all your uh, web standards render very similarly, support the same types of standards. When a new standard comes out, they're all pretty good about adopting at the same time. Like people got their act together who who run browsers, right? Like it happened. And even though the market shares aren't like a third, third, a third, um, they're all moving in that kind of same direction. So would love to see it with some of these other enabling technologies because I think it will make the business better in the long term. Christian, if today I wanted to say I wanted to run a better email client server or whatever, like I want more secure, better email, are there services I can go to? I mean, what do I do? You know, I, I think about I've got Gmail, I've got Live, which is Microsoft. They're both totally reading all my emails, right? Yahoo is the same way. I use that for spam. And for those accounts that, you know, I've had that account for a long time and all my spam goes there. Mm -hmm. But if I wanted to say I wanted to do something different, what what would you be your recommendation? What could I do that would be better practice? If because I still need to use email, yeah. right? But but what's better practice? Where where else could I go? Yeah, I mean my my common my common thoughts are like a secure the platform that you log into. So make sure that you're taking advantage of whatever authentication mechanisms the provider offers to do something more than just a password, especially when dealing with webmail, right? Um, number two. Um, if you're in the common practice of downloading your email to your phone or to your desktop or device, um, get in the habit of removing messages off the server after 30 days, right? Like you're never going to go back and use it on the webmail after 30 days. You're going to pull it back up on your cell phone if you need it. Or if it's an archive thing, you're going to go and get it off your desktop. Like get in the habit of not leaving a trove of information in your email account, right? Like just because let's say someone did get into your account. Now they just it's, it's free wheels running to view your history as opposed to, yeah, they can certainly send and do bad things on behalf of you, but they don't have this huge trove of Jim Collison over the last 20 years of email. Um, third thing is I do really recommend people look into, it is not a huge bar to get to an easy implementation of um, open PGP. And actually one of the projects we had worked in at uh, University of Maryland was a, an app called Private Mail. And it was something that integrated, you could install it as a Chrome plugin off the Chrome store, and it would basically make it super easy for you to enroll in PGP and automatically use it with Gmail. So it would automatically show the buttons to like encrypt and decrypt your email, 
um, and, and like invite your friends to swap PGP keys. So um, I think it broke in the latest release of Chrome. So I, you know, I, there's some work there to maintain an update, but there's a bunch of things like that out there. Um, so my advice to anyone really, even without the whole conversation we had is pick the top five people that you communicate with most frequently and just make the invitation to say, Hey, let's try this thing out together. Right. Um, because once you get that, like that means that let's say of the top five people you communicate with that comprises 50% of the emails that you get on average in a week, then you've just protected your most privileged communications without pulling your hair out. And that is like a one time setup. And then you don't have to ever think about it again. Um, and then you're kind of having these, you know, it gives you a nice mixed security model where you're doing good to make sure you get in the front door correctly. You're being smart about retention and long-term storage. Um, and the stuff that is stored, um, the most common frequent things of people that you know and you trust are properly protected and encrypted. And things that are like, oh, I got this next ad from spam source xyz etc like you don't even have to worry about pgp for stuff like that or if it's someone that emails you for the first time uh unlikely it's going to be the kind of thing that you're going to cry or lose sleep over if you if someone else got that email right so um i would say those are the top three biggest things the other common sense things are like making sure if you are using a mail client, like you aren't using IMAP, but you're using IMAP with an S at the end, like you are using those, the encryption and the in-transit that they offer out of the box, like go and just check those things. Um, and, and again, more radical approaches are things like, I'm not even going to trust any clients. I'm going to use webmail only and so forth, right? So different trade-offs, the, the three that I listed are the ones that I think are the most reasonable to do in a short amount of time to have big reward in terms of beefing up your email security. You, you had mentioned uh, clearing. Uh, you know, we have an email retention policy where I work that uh, after I think it's 90 days, they just disappear. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd like to do that. I mean, that I, I'm kind of thinking like, wow, I'd like to implement that in my Yahoo account and my Gmail account because I've got in my Yahoo account, I have, I mean, I've got emails that go back to 97 when I created the account, right? Uh, but they don't send it that way. Like it's really hard to go in there and clear that much email. Do you know of any settings or in those that would allow me to tell them, hey, yeah. can we keep 90 days? Well, so hard to do it from the webmail, but easy to do it from a client. So Fire, uh, Thunderbird, Outlook, Apple Mail, et cetera, all have really good support for when you set up the account type, you can set like do not keep messages longer than X days. So if it's the first time you've done this and it's something where it's like, oh, Jim Collison has messages going back to 97 that like need to be archived off properly. I usually recommend people set it up as a pop secure, a pops basically instead of IMAP because what pops is doing is actually downloading a physical copy to that mail client and it will automatically basically do a full download and say, okay, I have all these messages in the box up till this point. And then once it gets that copy, it looks at the retention policy and says, oh, anything older than 30 days, delete off the server. And then now that permanent copy is archived in your desktop. If your desktop is properly being encrypted and backed up, then you don't have to worry about losing that single copy you just transferred off. Um, So it's a great way to like play catch up 
um, and then use IMAP. I'm, I'm going to take a quick look right now. I know for um, Outlook, that setting is readily available for POP. Um, with IMAP, because the notion with IMAP is that you're syncing across devices, it doesn't remove messages by default because the whole idea is to give all the devices an opportunity to see read status, read, unread, et cetera. So like you have to have a trade-off between like what is your archive device and what is your reading set of reading devices. So there is a use case for having both POP and IMAP set up on your mail account. And it's simply only one device is responsible for the POP, which is like the the like bulk download and archiving of messages older than 30 days. And anything that's from zero to 30 days is being picked up by the IMAP protocol and allows you to use mail in a normal, comfortable way. Um, and I think that hybrid approach allows you to not have to think about how to deal with individual ma- web mail interfaces, but just a common approach to take with software. Yeah. I, I just like to get to the point with, uh, email where I have a 90 day retention policy on everything. And I just say, look, if I, I, if I haven't done something with it, it disappears. And in mm-hmm. most cases that incents me to be, to think, okay, if there's important information in this email, I need to move it somewhere and not in its form, in its current form, move it somewhere more secure, <laughs> you know, whether I'm going to drop that into a, you know, a LastPass password manager or keep it locally encrypted or whatever, right? But to get it out of that current email form, especially because we know email has just become a place for those providers. I mean, it's pretty clear, Gmail and Yahoo and even Microsoft in some cases are, while they don't have a person reading those, they're being read for advertising. We're getting advertised to them. And maybe 90-day retention doesn't fix that. But to me, I just kind of started thinking like, hey, man, if I could just turn 90 days on everything and it's going to disappear, I don't know. I talk to people all the time and they freak out about that. Like, oh, I've got stuff going back to 15 years that I need that I've got buried in my email. And I kind of go, really? <laughs> like, it should probably be somewhere else, just to be honest. But I don't know. I, to me, it would, I would love all my emails disappear within 90 days. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they're gone. It's like, okay, I haven't done anything with them. It's incredibly freeing at work knowing that I just, they just disappear off the back end. And I should have done something with them <laughs> yeah. by then. Right? And if I didn't. They'll ask me again. Someone will ask me again or send it to me again or whatever. Although that person who's sending it to me again is probably one of those crazy people that keeps it in folders <laughs> that, you know, has longer yeah. retention policies on it. But um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, before we go, uh, I we, we had a bunch of links, but uh, we'll have to save those for next time. But there's a security, uh, security piece with the latest edition of uh, of our friends over at Apple. You want to talk about that before we go? Yeah, so a big week for Apple. Today they dropped the Mojave release of uh, I, or not iOS, uh, OSX uh, 10.14. It is the follow-on to High Sierra. Probably the only feature I care about, to be honest, is the new sexy dark skin that like you can make your Mac go, go dark mode, basically, instead of its traditional white and light and fluffy colors. Um, it was reported today that um, there was a privacy bug uh, found within... Um, launch day itself um, that basically, you know, uh, traditionally Macs have forced applications to ask for certain permission requests. Apple is very conscientious about this across this platform. Um, The report was that um, 
there were cases where you could basically get it to bypass that um, request and basically get access to permissions. But he made it very clear that it wasn't a universal bypass, but that it could allow a particular malicious app to gain access to data that, you know, like user contacts that is otherwise not supposed to be done. It was a, it's a small security bump in the road of what I think is a pretty big release for Mac on 10.14. It also is a fast follow on to the release last week of iOS 12, which hasn't had any major crushing um, disappointments like iOS 11.0 did in terms of like, we got a day into iOS 11.0 before the 0.1 release had to come out. So um, 12 has been much more stable by and large um, for its initial rollout. Um, some of the security features of note that we've talked about in this show before are the fact that iOS 12 automatically makes the USB and data port connectivity on the phone inactive after an hour. So you can't really tamper with the device if the phone's been inactive. Um, also improves the emergency alerting system um, allows for uh, support for end-to-end encryption of FaceTime videos by default. So a lot of great security features in the iOS 12 release that I think just continues to make Apple sit a little bit ahead of Android when it comes to privacy and security on the mobile device platform. So pretty pretty pleased with that release sequence so far. Yeah, good to hear. I saw the I saw it come out. In fact, somebody had said to me the other day they, they had installed it, and I was like, oh, Checked on my phone, and then I'm like, not a convenient time. So maybe tonight, uh, plug it in uh, before I go to bed. Let it uh, reboot. It set, set the alarm. Let it do its thing, and uh, and let it upgrade. Kind of overnight. It'll, it won't take very long. I think those things usually take just a few minutes. Uh, but they get that in. Indeed, good good to hear. Uh, funny you mentioned night mode. I've got the night mode on on Gmail. Is I uh, brought that up just to kind of look through some of the features in there because I'm like, hey, is there a retention? Can I set on the web? Could I set a retention limit? Nah, I couldn't find one. Maybe someone out there listening knows of a way to set retention on it. Gmail and Yahoo are probably the same thing for me, where I probably just have emails going back forever. And I cur- I have a current habit of I clear my Yahoo email every day. So I just go through and it's literally, I'm just scanning it because it's my, it's my spam stuff, right? I, I send, I sign up for things that I, I want to pay attention to, but I know I'm just going to get the crap spammed out of me. So I delete, 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 just as I'm eyeballing it, right? Not so much on Gmail, but I would, I'm kind of thinking like it's been a while since I've gone back to an email uh, that I needed and I've moved subscription stuff off, you know, if I've got a key. Although anymore, if you buy software keys, they're stored at the place you bought, you bought them, right? I mean, if you're New Egg, will store that for you. Amazon will store that for you in a digital locker. Um, so, which is really the way that needs to be, by the way. Like, if you're buying a software key for for some software, the vendor should provide a service for at least five or six years where they they hold on to that key for you. You can just log back in. That's great. I think Amazon does that for me on anything I buy digital. So. That's that's pretty cool. Good 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 job on that, Christian. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> uh, anything else before we go? No, I think that's a wrap. I think yeah. It's funny how we were kind of like, well, I wonder what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, YubiKey is what we're going to talk. Would you? Um, let me let me ask you this before we go. I'd love for a different way to lock my Windows computer. That's not the traditional way of either a PIN or a password. If I were to if I were to say, hey, I want in. I don't have the fancy 
you know, the fancy camera stuff yet on my PC. Is there a lock or to unlock? Unlock is what I meant. Well, I would have to lock it, but to get back to it, if I wanted to do hardware to get back to it, what are my options? Yeah, well, so it's funny because on the locking side, uh, I need to go and find the name of the app for you, but there's an app that basically when you walk away, away a certain distance from your computer when your phone's in your pocket it automatically locks it for you so like you don't have to think about hitting the lock key on your keyboard you just basically it's a proximity alarm to your phone um for unlock i know the the big three right now are password fingerprint or um facial rec so um not clear to me there are any other prevailing um methods of access right now for windows um but we can definitely take that offline for post-show checkout some of these i i also wouldn't mind uh two-factor off my phone in other words so i come in and put the pin in and the phone i have to do this to get to my email for work and some other places the phone goes hey is that you you know and i gotta i have to get you know i have to identify through the phone and actually log into it not just get a pop-up with a code mm-hmm. that's so st- we talked about this a couple shows ago that's so stupid that you know by default those messages come and i see those text messages and my code is there it's not that's not secure and yes everybody has told me i heard from people well you can change that in the settings why is that on by default like that shouldn't have that shouldn't have worked we shouldn't have done that in the early days where we allowed us to do those yeah, send me the code via text message. Hey, jackass, that's going to show up on your phone or your watch or like it's not, it's anyways. So it's not, it's not what it should be from, from that. So I was just kind of thinking my daughter made fun of me because I was up, she was home for the summer and I was talking about security on my PC. She's like, dad, I can get into your PC anytime I want because you never lock it. And I don't. I walk away from it, and rarely does it lock. Only on a right. reboot, right? Right. And um, and you know, kind of thinking, you know, maybe I ought to be. There's no reason for me not to lock it. In fact, I'm going to do this. I'm going to set that app because I I know about that app too. I'm going to set that app, that proximity app, and I'm going to test that out. And I'm going to lock this thing when I walk away. I have a couple PCs that I could try it on. It'll be interesting to see. Can I get them all to lock for me? And, uh, and when I walk away, so cool. Very All good. right. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, we, we somehow blew through an hour, so that's, that's pretty great. Remind everyone, don't forget subscribe, rate and review, wherever you kind of do that. We'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear, do you like this? Is it working for you? If you don't like it, just stop listening. We don't really want to hear from you. So we, if it's, if it's positive and you want to send that, that, that stuff's always great to hear from you. Let us know. Follow us. Do all the things that you need to do. Don't forget this show sponsored by Maple Grove Partners. Get secure, reliable, high-speed hosting from those folks that you know and you trust. And you just heard from them for the last hour, maplegrovepartners.com. We do welcome your questions and comments. If you would like to get those to us, you can use, well, no, don't send email. We just spent a whole show, not really the whole show, but good chunks of it talking about email. Uh, still send it to us. Jim at TheAverageGuy.tv. Christian at TheAverageGuy.tv. There's nothing in there to just get it sent to us. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back in a couple more weeks with another Cyber Frontiers. With that, we'll say goodbye, everybody. Good night.